Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today, which is June 7th, 2017. We have a wonderful guest. His name is David Edward. A little background on David. He's an inventor, a scientist, a writer, and he's founder of Le Laboratory in Paris. He's into biotech and tech companies, including AIR, which was sold, Pullmatrix, and Incredible Foods, etc., Art Science, we'll be discussing creativity in the post-Google generation and touching upon knowledge of new forms and technologies for improved health and human wellness. In his teaching at Harvard University and his public work, he's explored frontiers with the artists and the scientists, chefs, perfumes, and creators of all kinds. And he also got into the inhaled insulin for needle-free diabetes treatments, salt particles for COPD, and pulmonary infections. A common theme of his inventive work relates to delivering human health and wellness via the air we breathe. We are honored to have David Edwards join us today on our show, and we welcome him. David, would you tell our audience how you got on the path you are on today? Actually, I was uh, invited, so I founded various companies, and, and in the context of uh, that work, I was invited to participate, and particularly I've done a lot of work related to inhaled drug delivery and, and other kinds of health delivery through the air, and that was really the context for this invitation. You're also a professor, correct? I am, yes. How did you decide to get into that? Actually, my background is one of applied math, and I, in my early days, did wrote books and things like that, and ultimately got into academia because that's kind of all that I did. And in that context, ended up publishing an article in the journal Science that led to a company uh, for inhaled insulin that... Mm-hmm. Um, we sold in the late 90s. And so I have been since the early 2000s at Harvard University but and teaching, but I also have quite an active life outside of Harvard University in uh, starting companies and, and not-for-profits, um, often and generally related to healthcare and the environment, but uh, even more broad than that. And so mm-hmm. I am a professor and I am at Harvard University, but I'm also um, in many other places. <laughs> Takes a lot of energy to do what you what you do. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I well, I you know, I'm not alone in the passion category, but I, uh, yeah, I'm an inventor, and as a friend of mine 
recently told me inventors about are about creating their own problems, and so we we tend to create problems and then we don't sleep at night just being passionately <laughs> engaged with sort of resolving them. Oh, that's, that's, that's just great. Just like Einstein used to do. <laughs> uh, well, maybe. I don't really know that guy, but I'm sure that he did, yeah. <laughs> oh, I assure you, he didn't sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Uh, well, let's talk about some of your inventions. Obviously, you use biophysics. My... Um, Inventions have ranged from, as I mentioned right away, inhaled insulin and designing special kinds of particles that look like wiffle balls that will really very easily carry with a very easy breath insulin deep into your lungs to replace injections. And since then, I've done work related to inhaled vaccines for tuberculosis and antibiotics for tuberculosis, and I did that work in Africa and also uh, work on inhaled uh, drugs for pulmonary disease and infection uh, that is part of a company called Pometrix now. I also have done quite a bit of work related to future food forms. So I have a company called Incredible Foods that makes any food or drink in a kind of fruit form that allows you to eat the packaging, and so it has a product on the market called Perfectly Free, which is free of the eight leading uh, allergens and will have other products out in the market in several thousand stores in the United States. I've invented uh, breathable food or food form that goes to the air, and there's a product that's called the WAF, W-H-A-F, that allows you to create really any cake or or a soup or, or other food forms in cloud forms, and so they, it looks like the cloud over your head, but it settles into your glass, and you can kind of sip it into your mouth, and so it's really interesting, and that the taste is great, and the um, oh kind of olfactory experience is great, but there's no calories, because it's just so light, and so it's really interesting, and my... Well, if there's, most, no, cal- if there's no calories, are there nutrients? There are, but not, I mean, it's, it's, this is mostly, uh, and, and I, we can talk a little bit more about this, but it's mostly a sensorial experience and so I'm quite interested in the power of olfaction or um, you know what we smell and uh, so has medical science really for the last uh, 13 years I guess since the Nobel Prize for elucidating how we um, smell basically olfaction and um, science has been really really interested in the power of scent Um, the sensory only sensory nerve that goes right to your brain is that of um, smell or olfaction, and um, and so it has quite a significant impact on your health. Even though, uh, from a no, it, this is not the way to deliver um, a great deal of nutrients. Uh, it is a great way to create effects that relate to satiety and other kinds of um, empowerment, actually. And so, that if the yeah. power of scent impacts your health, how does that? How does that work? So interesting, and let me also, and I'll answer that, but let me say that my most recent company is called O-Notes, uh, O-Notes.com, and it, we, we digitize scent, and so we allow you to deliver scent, pure scent, and uh, again, with uh, health kinds of, uh, and wellness kinds of ramifications. And so how does it work? Well, you, I'm sure, are aware of aromatherapy and, and the, the notion that scent 
has a big impact on our memory is something that is quite well known and scent is used a lot in marketing and if you walk by an Abercrombie and Fitch store you'll be sort of overwhelmed Mm -hmm. by smell but frankly if you walk through the streets of Paris and you kind of at every corner have a bakery you will know it before you see it (laughs) and so how does smell or scent impact our health well interesting when you so just to explain the biology of olfaction so when a the smell of a croissant comes to you there are molecules in the air that will trigger what we call receptors on your um, olfactory tissue in your nose and that will create an electrical signal that goes to your brain uh, really rapidly and that leads to a cascade of um, electrical, biochemical uh, kinds of effects in your body. And there are uh, quite a lot of data, um, uh, many of it phenomenological, based on just a lot of people's experience, and some of it biological. And it it, it will show that certain scents, for example, that of citrus or of peppermint, uh, will have an um, energizing effect um, on an individual, whereas other scents will have a calming effect. Now, these effects, if you compare the effect, for example, it's been found with quite uh, biological precision that the smell of roasted coffee bean will wake you up um, independently of there being caffeine um, in your body. And so that's really fascinating, and there are biochemical Mm -hmm. reasons for that. Now, the effect relative to caffeine in your body is small, so these mm-hmm. are not major effects, but they are uh, measurable effects. And so when it comes to the kinds of needs that we have, whether it's while we're driving or we're sitting behind our computer or we're trying to sleep at night, the effect of scent can be significant. And we all know this really uh, in um, our daily experience, even though we don't think about it much, what scent does to us who mm-hmm. live in the northern climates and don't have anything to smell the most of the year when it comes to spring and we walk out and we have these great sense of spring that are kind of helping us calm down as we walk through the streets or wherever we are, mm. or when we eat. I mean, the, the scent is critical to flavor, and um, and so the impact of um, flavor um, is... Um, you That's know, true. Known. So, and there are studies, for example, that show that, uh, actually these studies have been done with women, uh, fasting for six hours and then smelling chocolate actually has you know, creates biochemical arise and biochemical indicators of satiety. So the smell of chocolate can help us sort of fast a little bit longer. So these things are known and, and fascinating to medicine uh, and and to me, actually. So I, I, mm-hmm. yeah, I, mm-hmm. I do a lot um, related to um, health through the air. Yeah, and basically they can be mood modifiers as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's exactly right. And, and uh you know, the the sensory nerve of olfaction goes, as I said, to the brain directly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. particularly it goes to the emotive um part of the brain and, and specifically right. the hippocampus, which is the seat of mm-hmm. uh, memory and, right. and right. so in a real way, you emotively process scent before you cognitively mm-hmm. do. So you smell. And by the way, this just gets to how we've survived. You know, and you basically, you smell certain things and you run. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and, uh, and Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or, or whatever you do. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so scent is, a, a, in many ways, an alarm signal and, a, and a, a, you know, an attraction. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things, but it's very emotive, absolutely. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about your research into asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Those are two things that a great deal of our population here in the state suffer from. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, um, you know, given my early interest in um, insulin um, and the first technology I developed, we began immediately to um, look at asthma and COPD. And, um, you know, this was in the late 90s, and I became much more um, engaged in the health problem in the 2000s. Now, as you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, asthma, um, specifically have uh, rates have uh, gone up over um, the last decades, and the driver being uh, just irritants and particulates mm-hmm. in the air, and obviously um, uh, smoking and secondhand smoking is one of the culprits, but um, urban living is clearly mm-hmm. another, uh, one of the culprits. And the the fact is that the disease is a, um, a disease of the lungs and of the lung tissue. Uh, uh, and, and so how do we get drugs to that tissue? Of Well, one way is that you take oral drugs uh, or an injection, mm-hmm. and it, 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 uh, those drugs pass through your blood system, and then you count on them being absorbed into the lungs. There's a lot of capillary system in your lungs. Uh, But the negative there is that you put a lot of that drug throughout your body and it leads to quite uh, many uh, side effects that are sometimes almost as bad as the disease. So uh, Mm -hmm. over the last 40 or 50 years, there's been the realization that the better way to treat um, diseases like COPD is to deliver drugs through the air um, like smoke gets through the air to your lungs, mm-hmm. into your lungs. Mm-hmm. And so there's been, for that period of time, a great deal of interest in research. And, well, how do you do that efficiently? Because the fact is when you breathe in a bronchodilator, for example, or an anti-inflammatory for uh, treating your um, lung disease, a lot of it can fall out in your mouth and be swallowed. And, and so how do you make it so that it really goes clearly and cleanly to the lungs. So that's where my work has been um, focused in trying to make sure that if um, a drug like Teotropium, which we, uh, which is delivered for um, COPD, um, Spiriva is the product um, that's on the market, if that's um, delivered to the lungs, I want it to go to the lungs and not to go um, to your mouth and to your stomach. And so my work has focused on making therapies that allow that drug to get really efficiently to the lungs and and, uh, make you better and not make you worse. Have these hit the market yet, or are they still in research? Well, they are actually moving towards the market. So one of the uh, drugs is um, being developed by a company called Pometrix, and it's right. uh, quite um, far along in clinical trials and is an example of, and specifically I mentioned Teotropium. Uh, there's a couple mm-hmm. of their drugs that are moving through the market, but one, and through the clinic, but um, Teotropium is, is one of those. So you about a year out or two years out? Uh, yeah, we're probably, I think that we're uh, more than a year out and, you know, less than five years out. And I'm probably not even um, allowed to say exactly how far we are out, but we are, um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction. So yeah, oh, for that's sure. good. Yeah, I, I think um, last year I interviewed someone from Polmetrics about this very topic. 
and it's going to be great. It's going to help a lot of people. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. I mean, another one of the problems that the um, technology is focusing on is, is, as you know, in treating over a long period of time, these are obviously chronic diseases, um, COPD, often um, what develops um, is um, fungal infections. And so there's... Mm -hmm. And the way that we're treating that right now is through... um, oral therapies and and so here again by and the negative is that it leads to uh, very significant side effects and and so uh, which can frankly just stop people from um, using it and so the ability to for example interconazole which is a, a drug that is taken um, orally for that um, we can deliver that directly to the lungs and and pretty much eliminate those side effects so yeah I think that the opportunity for taking what we know works and uh, mm-hmm, through biophysics mm-hmm. making it actually get to where we need it is really great and, and um, is a is a hopeful sign really for COPD over the coming years. Is there anything that biophysics can do to help turn the tide against the spread of pulmonary disease? Or Yeah, well, I, th- I think that, again, the, the main issue here, and it's funny, uh, you know, we, we, we uh, maybe have been seduced by the effectiveness of a of an aspirin pill in thinking that um, medicine is is really a matter of just kind of um, putting the drug in a pill and kind of putting it in our body, in, you know, in our mouth. And mm-hmm. uh, most drugs um, require more precision than that. And you know, there's obvious cases where you're talking about um, perhaps a brain. Um, tumor or um, some other very mm-hmm. specific organ uh, illness that actually just taking a pill is not going to lead to much drug, if any, getting to where it needs to go. So medicine is pretty focused on, at this point, on how do we get those drugs that we know work to the tissue in as most efficient way as possible. Because these drugs, by virtue of uh, working um, and having this activity, if they go to places where they're not supposed to go, they can also have activity, but kind of the wrong, have the the, the wrong kind of effects. And so the safety and and, uh, side effects can be an issue. So biophysics can allow you to optimize the... um, you know, the drug getting where it needs to go. And and um, so in my work, it, it has really been um, focused on um, making particles that carry these drugs travel extremely efficiently through the air and into the lungs. It's uh, maybe not known by your listeners that if you take the lungs and the surface area of the lungs that's exposed to the environment and laid it out, if it were possible, on a you know, one surface. It's the size of a a singles tennis court. So it's an enormous surface area. And how do you cover that? Kind of like you sort of spray water on mm-hmm. your lawn. How do you spray mm-hmm. drug really efficiently over that surface, given that it's quite a complicated, torturous route from your mouth, if you will, or your nose mm-hmm. to the uh, to the, all that surface area. And so it um you know fortunately bio we've figured this out and there's been a lot of work done here over the last decades really understanding how air moves through your lungs and, and particles get into your lungs and so we've we've uh, taken that 
and uh, combined it with just basic physics of how particles work to uh, to help get particles very very uniformly over the surfaces of the lungs. And so people will begin to see uh, these effects here in the in the next uh, few years in therapies and. Um, and hopefully we can, yeah, hopefully we can turn the tide of, of COPD in our favor. Let me ask you this. Are you using nanotechnology to make these particles and to deliver uh, them? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, um, the particles that we make, just to be clear, are um, about the, you know, uh, they're, they're smaller than the um, diameter of uh, hair, um, but they're um, not too much smaller. So they're they're micron size. Now it's possible, and we have done uh, work absolutely with uh, nanoparticles that will go inside these kinds of particles. The therapies I've just mentioned are not using mm-hmm. nanoparticles. And why would you use nanoparticles? I mean, the advantage of nanoparticles is if you are specifically targeting certain kinds of cells and for the reasons I was saying before you really want to make sure that the drug is only released in these kinds of cells you can put the drug into these very very small particles and they they kind of don't they they kind of are preferentially pulled up by the cells because of their very very small size but there's no need in the therapies that I've been mentioning just no specific need for nanotechnology, and so um, we're not using it right now in these therapies I just mentioned. Oh, interesting. Maybe you'll make some kind of little bot. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we, I'm, well, I'm sure we will, that absolutely, all... yeah. <laughs> in other words, you know, once it's released into the air, all these little bots will just go to those designated areas in the lungs. Wouldn't that be fabulous? Yeah, well, that's, that's yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, that's kind of what's going on, but it's, it's, we're just using natural forces. We don't have to put some artificial forces there. <laughs> and obviously you've also worked on inhaled antibiotics, now that's pretty yeah. interesting, specific to tuberculosis. Because yeah, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but um, we have a lot of drug resistance TB now. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, and even the so treatment it, itself is is it's quite aggressive, and a lot of yeah, people I'm, don't finish it. That's exactly right. So, in fact, my that work was um, initially funded by the uh, Gates Grant Challenge Grant, and in the um, just to be clear then, yes, TB uh, remains a major infectious disease uh, globally, and particularly in uh, countries where there's an HIV mm. pandemic or, or disease mm. um, uh, prevalence, because the immune system, so just you know, I mean, because the immune system is so weak in, the, in an mm-hmm. HIV situation, what happens is that um, often uh, HIV-infected um, individuals will um, uh, contract and die from TB. Now, many people um, have TB uh, in a latent form, and so it is. There's tuberculosis bacteria in their bodies, and yet it's not active, and so it's it's latent and waiting, and it's kind of waiting for the immune system to be weak, uh, so weak that it it becomes active. It turns out. So this challenge of TB is major, and especially in the developing world, um, but not only. Um, and so what happens is that when an individual um, shows signs of um, tuberculosis, um, he or she hopefully is identified, and, and there are antibiotics that are um, delivered over a many-month time frame. And mm-hmm. um, 
the symptoms go away in a relatively short period of time, and often individuals will stop to take the therapy and um, and the negative there, uh, among others, is that their um, tuberculosis can develop a resistance to that antibiotic. And so at this point, and then that can be communicated. So at this point, there is a lot of resistant tuberculosis in the world. And as you mentioned, the treatment for resistant tuberculosis is um, can be very brutal and uh, involve um, uh, daily injections and things. And and for a long period of time, actually, it was just assumed that if individuals had uh, resistant tuberculosis, um, there was nothing to do. Paul Farmer, who's a uh, colleague here at Harvard, has um, been come really well known for his um, championing of uh, therapies for um, multi- MDRTB, as we call it, or um, multi-drug resistant TB. And uh, but it's it's very hard and painful. So what we've done is develop uh, drug uh, particles with uh, an antibiotic that was originally developed by Eli Lilly. Capriomycin uh, that you can inhale through the air and goes right into your lungs, as I've been describing for these other therapies, mm-hmm. and it works really, really well. In fact, and so we developed it with a not-for-profit, and it's now being developed by a, um, a Chinese pharmaceutical company called Haisun, and uh, there's a not-for-profit in Seattle that's developing it um, here for uh, the um, non-Asian um, market and um, and um, you know, we uh, did an early sta- uh, trial with the uh, FDA trial, and it was very successful. So there's a very a lot of hope for an inhaled MDRTB uh, TB therapy. Will it be expensive? I should not be actually. I think that the 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 technology and the inhaler is all really quite inexpensive, and the drug at this point. I think that. It, it once was a, uh, an expensive drug, but at this point, it should be able to be produced at a really um, a reasonable um, cost. That'll be good, yeah, you know, so for for worldwide dispension, because yeah, a lot of countries just don't have the means to. Absolutely, absolutely, you know, yeah. And in South to... Africa, particularly, we're just we just had some uh, back in the dialogue. We our not for profit was in uh, South Africa and. And um, and now, as I said, the drug's been developed elsewhere. But um, the given the mining that goes on in South Africa, the the, mm-hmm. the TB problem is, is is just been exacerbated. And so there's now a a recognition there um, locally among mining companies among others. And so now significant resources to help get these things to the market, which is exactly what we need. Oh, that's that's yeah. really great news. Over the course of your profession, it seems like you're turning to consumer products and experiences. Uh, is that because it's, you know, the innovation is there now for you to be able to bring products to the market or? Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's actually, I, my interest here the last years in the consumer is paralleling, I think, a general interest in the pharmaceutical industry and um, related to the following thing. As you know, the cost of uh, medical treatment is a major challenge. Access mm-hmm. to um, advanced medical um, care is a challenge. And as we think 20 years and more in the future, and we think, well, how does advanced health care reach everyone? The consensus really is that we need to find a way to move medicine beyond the treatment of illness 
and toward the management of wellness. And, and what I mean by that is we need to bring into consumer lives, all of our lives, um, in the you know 364 days that we're not at the hospital, hopefully, we need to bring a uh, wellness management that is improving our health and, and not simply, um, you know, saving us when we're um, uh, ill. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and how does that happen? Um, well, as you know, this notion of personalized medicine and, and medicine that is, is moving, um, and we see it, in, for example, with an, uh, you know, an iPhone and a, a health app and other um, mm-hmm, kinds of mm-hmm. uh, wearable technology and stuff that's uh, starting to emerge where you're seeing um, an increase increased intention within this sort of internet of things uh, uh, technology and the phone being an obvious um, example we're seeing an increased attention toward using these devices that we carry with us to be monitoring and helping move us towards um, more autonomous uh, healthcare. Now, frankly, it's not just there. It's also in the food we eat um, and the kind of functional foods that we're starting to eat and, and you know, other kinds of um, consumer products that are increasingly focused on uh, wellness and, and even mm-hmm. on health. So this sort of move of the healthcare industry towards consumer is also paralleling a move of consumer, uh, for example, a company like Nestle, towards healthcare. And so Nestle views itself increasingly as a healthcare company. And, and the reality is, is just frankly, again, if you look 20 years out and more, our future is a future of human wellness or we don't have a future. So there's this real general sense that healthcare in the future will not just be managed by a doctor, sort of approved by the FDA and kind of um, sold to us by the pharmacist, but will be much, much broader. And so I'm fascinated in that. And and what's interesting is when you move outside of the traditional healthcare model, you then enter into consumer lives and consumer choice, you know, and so it's not... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just a matter of the doctor prescribing the um, the therapy that you then take. It's it's a matter of you really wanting to eat this or to um, wear that or to be um, kind of living in a certain way. And that's the secret. If we can figure out how to help all of us be living uh, a more mindful and healthy lives, then we've made an enormous advance. And so what that I find fascinating as an inventor is that now it's not just a matter of being smart and and figuring out how to invent things or kind of fortunate that um, maybe can raise the money you need to develop um, drugs and things like that, but it's also a matter of actually listening to people and and being in a dialogue with consumers and being figure out together, well, how do we um, make this um, in a way fun and enjoyable, and um, and something that we'll actually do. So I'm, I'm I, I've been really having a, a great time uh, focusing on these kinds of issues. I know that you have a cafe. Are you experimenting with yeah, with these yeah, so, um, with these ideas? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I here in um, uh, near MIT and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A, restaurant called Cafe Art Science, and we, it's a fine dining restaurant, but we also do a lot of experimentation, and we're 
right now actually we by the at the end of june we we are um moving to a completely different level where we'll be doing yeah quite a bit of experimentation and and my thinking there is that really the you know the future of eating which is so you know as you know the food system is not sustainable and we do need to change our the way we eat well the only place that's going to happen is uh, in a place where people are eating every day. And, uh, and I think that restaurants are, um, and, and food service programs are, are absolutely the uh, ground zero for mm-hmm. creating the future of food. And, and so, it, yeah, labs matter and, and uh, you know, food companies, absolutely. But at the end of the day, this is a consumer experience. And so restaurants are really fascinating. So we um, are exploring in um, cafe art science, uh, yeah, new kinds of food experiences and 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 trying to make them fun and, and enjoyable and 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 we have a lot of other kinds of uh, you know conversations going on with our um, the people who come into the restaurant. Give me an example of what you might do. What might we is do? It in, yeah, is it in, is it in the in the presentation of the food or the ingredients of the food uh, it, or delivery of the food? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot going on in exploring the future of food um, around the world, and uh, and it relates to where does food come from in the future? How do we feed a, a planet of seven, eight, nine, ten billion people uh, sustainably? It relates to well, where does it go when when you're done? So food waste and and packaging and and pollution that's related to that. It relates to carbon footprint, and but it also relates to getting nutritious food. To people and 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 something I call hacking the senses and it relates just to the fact that we have evolved from um, conditions where we were uh, in deprivation and we didn't have much around us so we ate whatever we had to a world where we have a lot and uh, and so we're over consuming and so how do we sort of help our senses kind of be happy um, and satisfied without sort of over-consuming. So we are especially at the cafe focused on uh, delivery. And so um, that's kind of what I'm focused a lot on. And so we, what do we do? So one of the uh, things we're interested in, I mentioned earlier, is edible packaging. And uh, so Mm -hmm. we're interested in making food forms um, that Mm -hmm. uh, allow you to have a a full meal kind of um, uh, experience with uh, packaging that you eat when you're um, when you're done so that's um, something that we're we're um, we've been working on for many years and we really are working a lot on that we do I mentioned the um, these kind of airborne clouds of food Uh, so we um, have those in the restaurant and are exploring how how can these be product called the WAF W H A F and how can these be uh, used to for uh, both um, satiety and and for um, sports um, kinds of applications where we're um, mm. uh, so we're developing that here in the restaurant. So if you were to come here at the end of June or any time this summer or into the fall, you would have some really great experiences. We actually have one really wild experiment that we're, we're yeah we're doing here this summer, which is involves a um a robotic uh um uh catering uh sort of re- kind of a robotic waiter if you will but it's not you know replacing our other waiters it's actually just this really cute it's called cafe gita beautiful um robot that's developed by piaggio which is an italian transportation company and they have uh, a startup here in the area and, and created this really lovely little robot and it 
we're interested. It's, you know, electrical and, and you sort of touch a little button and it follows, you know, you wherever you go and it carries with you various things and like food and, and, and drink and things like that. And so we're exploring how this can lead to a really great catering service for the area that is all on foot and is, is really beautiful and it can actually get meals to people in the street who um, don't have them otherwise. So we're you know, transportation, food, uh, and, and getting food to where it needs to go with as minimal a carbon footprint is interesting. Um, yeah, so those are the kinds of things we do. Um, we have a, a many more things, but you should come mm-hmm. to the cafe and we'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it's really fascinating stuff. I like how we discussed, you know, you really are, looking into the future and that's that's a great thing you know it really is yeah, because, yeah. I, mean, um, I think we're all you know that i think we're all um whether we wanted it or not i think we've all awakened here in the uh june of 2017 and we're all kind of standing on the edge of the future right i think we're we've all kind of realized that while well, the world's changing really rapidly and yeah it's um, a really exciting that, time yeah, Very and it can be time. frightening too, you know. And I think that the I think that the more we can embrace um, and uh, positively act toward it, the more fun it becomes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, the the organic food industry is it has been growing to the point where out here on the West Coast, when you go into just a regular grocery store now, you know, yeah. like when your grocery store chains, they're literally, I would say, that the organic section is starting to expand beyond just the normal commercial section in, yes. for instance, the, um, the vegetable and the fruit, fruit areas. Yeah. Um, and the reason they're doing that is because consumers want it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, there's a clear attitude change here. And honestly, the last 10 years have been, there's so many trends here that are um, showing that consumers have, you know, awakened uh, to the fact, as I as I mentioned, that we're all really standing on a frontier, and it's really all up to us right mm-hmm. now to be pioneers. Pioneers the way we eat, pioneers the way we treat each other, and and um, and and pioneers in just the decisions we make. And so it's an awakened uh, moment, and yeah, it's our it's our opportunity right now for us and for our children. Absolutely. I just wanted to cover your book briefly: Art, Science, Creativity, and the post Google generation. I did read it and I'm taking this opportunity for you to clarify a few things for me. Yeah. You know, when you talk about art science, perhaps you can tell our listeners what the definition of that is and then I will ask you a couple of questions. Absolutely. Yeah, so art science as a word, it seems like a a um an error, right? So we think about art as being sort of what happens on the uh, kind of the right side of our brain and science is what happens yeah. on the left side of the brain and art is mm-hmm. this imaginative and inductive. Subconscious. And, um, yeah, uh, comfortable with uncertainty and science is deductive and, and analytical and, and logical. We, in neuroscience research, um, it's become absolutely clear here over the last 30 years and especially the last 10 years that the way the brain works in its most performative state is in this massive dialogue between the 
um, emotive and cognitive um, sides of our brain, between the imaginative and the analytical sides of our brain, and lots of examples for that. And so what I wrote, wrote about in this book, uh, which came out um, uh, about uh, almost 10 years ago now, is that in the most performative state, which for creators is, is, is the state of discovery, I'm, I'm at a frontier in a way, uh, the process, the creative process that's going on in, in our brain is really a combination of this intuitive, imaginative, um, comfortable with uncertainty process and this mm-hmm. analytical, deductive, and, and logical process. This process, which I call art science, is one which is just pretty intuitive for a little child and um, and is, is also very intuitive for great artists and great scientists. But it is institutionally pretty excluded from um, our schools and our companies and our, and our governments. Yes. And so I use that word, art science, to just put a flag on the fact that we have, um, through the kind of um, institutionalization of learning and of um, producing and creating tomorrow, pushed out the very spirit that we need in. And well, this came out 10 years ago, and, and the fact is that um, over these last 10 years has been such a flourishing of this art and science kind of collaborative work. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm at Harvard University, and I began to teach this way, you know, with this kind of art science mentality 10 years ago. And it was really quite, you know, we have the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and it's a very old university, and quite a clear division between what is art and what is science. Mm-hmm. But today, it is uh, becoming a different university. And, and I think part of it, frankly, has to do with the fact that the kids who are coming to school today, they are learning in a very different world. And they go online and they go from, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, the, gene- the genetics mm-hmm. of, uh, of, uh, of, yeah, of COPD, if you will, to the, uh, you know, Beethoven's uh, Ninth Symphony kind of thing in a flick of their finger, right? And so they yes. are much more comfortable with the fact that, boy, this is all one kind of um, world here. And so I think that there's both the fact that, well, kids are growing up in a much more open world and we are all pioneers we are all at frontiers and so i think that the just the needs of today are pushing us to um uh, underline the fact that you know we do need arts in the room as much as we need science in the room and uh and above all we need a the barrier between the two yeah. to go down oh that's 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 great we only have like 3 minutes left of our show my one question to you is you spoke about Diana in your book, and you talk about how she sketched a strange attractor. Yeah. Then she placed notes atop the atop the tractory and drew a new yeah. trajectory and projected yeah, notes yeah, onto yeah. this as a yeah. variation. I don't understand what that is. What does that mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you don't <laughs> understand what a strange attractor is. That's crazy. No, I'm just totally joking. I really I, don't. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. Who, who does, right? Yeah, so that's right. So in so the the um those words belong to a um a mathematical sort of representation uh that if you were to look at it, it kind of from a visual point of view, the strange attractor looks like a maybe you've seen images of a black hole where you you sort of see, it looks like there's something that's which it's true actually in a black hole where you've, you you have this 
immense gravity source that's pulling everything into it, and it 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 just it's such a big gravity source that it pulls in light, so it's like black, and so this is and so in fact um, a strange attractor is a the mathematical equivalent of that. And um, and so trajectories that kind of go into that are, are sort of like uh, light particles that are getting sucked into this um, black hole. Now you say, okay, what does this have to do with music? And so um, what was amazing about Diane uh, Diane's work, who's a composer who studied at MIT and and um, and now um, teaches at yeah, Owen we College. We have ninety and, seconds left. <laughs> yeah. So basically, that's really the idea. And uh, okay. I, I I wouldn't worry too much about it, but it, it sounds great. Okay. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolutely delightful interview, and I wish you the absolute best in your in your future endeavors. Oh. And I think that you're contributing amazingly well to mankind. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the show. It's really been a lot of fun. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, that wraps up our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to you listening in again next week. Bye-bye for now. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer? Now What? for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?